Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Nature was Canadian artist Tom Thompson's only muse. He spent three seasons each year from 1912 to 1917 at Canoe Lake in Algonquin Park, Ontario. There, he combined his two favorite pastimes, fishing and painting. Tom was a landscape artist with an eye for detail and color. He approached painting like a scientist, mixing unique shades that were difficult to come by at the time. Although Tom didn't know it then, he would later become famous for his vivid depictions of the Canadian wilderness. But Tom's art isn't all he left behind. On July 8, 1917, summer rain poured over Canoe Lake. For 39-year-old Tom Thompson, the weather had been disappointing all season. Not good for fishing and not pretty enough to paint. But then, around noon, the dark skies cleared and a fine mist settled over the area. Tom seized his opportunity. He loaded up his canoe with fishing equipment, food, and a sketchbook and started paddling about an hour later. He made his way across the water just as he had so many times before, only this time he left one of the nation's most baffling mysteries in his wake. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Tuesday, we dive into the world of a real unsolved murder and try to solve the case. You can find episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. This is our only episode on the mysterious death of Tom Thompson. Today, we'll explore the life of the iconic Canadian artist and investigate whether his abrupt ending was an accident or something more sinister. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Dr. Squatch. When your personal care routine needs a refresh, Dr. Squatch is here to help. They have high-performing natural products with no harmful ingredients that'll have you looking and smelling your best. Like the Bay Rum Soap and Deodorant. It smells delightfully spicy. And right now, they have an amazing offer for new customers. 
Get 20% off your first purchase of any amount or a subscription order by going to drsquatch.com slash Spotify or use the code Spotify at checkout. Born on August 5th, 1877, Tom Thompson grew up in the picturesque city of Leith, Ontario, Canada, about 125 miles northeast of Toronto. He spent his days outside, boating, fishing, and swimming. From an early age, he only wanted to explore the wilderness, and he longed to be free from tedious responsibilities like chores and school. As he grew older, though, he had to find a way to support himself. When he was 17, he left school to apprentice as a mechanic. But the work didn't hold his interest, and neither did any other profession. Throughout his young adulthood, he bounced between one trade and another, never sticking to anything for long. After a decade of this, Tom decided he needed a change of pace. In 1905, Around the age of 28, he moved to the bustling city of Toronto. He found work as a photo engraver, which involved designing lettering for advertisements. Unlike his previous jobs, this one inspired him. He realized he had a knack for artistic work. Wanting to hone his skills further, he enrolled in art classes. Right away, he started painting landscapes. One of his early pieces was of a wooded field at sunset. Between his work and his classes, Tom retreated to the outdoors. He spent months at a time camping and sketching Canada's magnificent landscapes. And in 1912, he found what would become his favorite spot, Algonquin Park. Situated in southeastern Ontario, Algonquin Park was an ideal destination for any adventurer. It had walking trails, lakes full of colorful fish, and striking scenery. Though the park spanned around 3,000 square miles, its year-round population was fewer than 150 people by 1914. It was a tight-knit community, led and protected by park ranger Mark Robinson. Because the area was fairly isolated, it attracted both tourists and criminals. Mark's job was to keep the paying guests safe and keep the others out. So when a train of newcomers arrived at the park in the spring of 1912, his eyes narrowed. He noted each of the visitors stepping off the train. Most carried trunks packed for at least a week's stay. But Mark also noticed a scruffy-looking man in his 30s, approaching the park with nothing more than a knapsack slung over his shoulder. It was 34-year-old Tom Thompson. According to John Little's book, Who Killed Tom Thompson, Mark described him as, quote, a tall, fine-looking young man. Mark couldn't help but wonder why such a man was traveling alone and why he'd come to Algonquin Park. Wanting to investigate, the ranger headed across the platform to introduce himself. (sighs) Unbelievable. It's like the air is easier to breathe up here. We pride ourselves on hearing that. Welcome to Algonquin Park, lad. The name's Ranger Mark Robinson. I take it you're a tourist? Eh, Something of the sort. I'm looking for work and a quiet place to get inspired. Plus, I hear you've got some of the best fishing in Canada in that lake of yours. (laughs) No question about it, you've come to the right park. 
I reckon we have enough fish to keep you happy during your time here. Whereabouts are you staying? I'm not picky. I'll settle for anywhere with a decent bed and a hot meal. Well, there's the hotel about a quarter mile away. But if it's a tastier meal you're after, Mowat Lodge is the place. Best breakfast in the park. Hey, <laughs> there's the owner now. Shannon, step over here for a moment, will ya? All right, Chief. <laughs> what have I done this time? I've drummed up some business for you here. This young man needs a bed and a hot meal. Told him to look no further than the Mowat. Uh, certainly. And you are? Name's Tom Thompson. I'm an artist, but also a jack-of-all-trades. I'm just hoping to escape the noise of Toronto for a few months. A bit of fishing, perhaps get some painting in. I suppose we could find some room for you. If you're good for the money, of course. Ah, uh, well, I'm hoping to stay through the summer, and, uh, I guess I only have enough to cover the first few days. Uh, but... I'm happy to make myself useful in exchange for room and board. Times were tough for the artist. It was the early 1900s. World War I was just on the horizon, and most Canadians lived modestly. Art was a luxury, something very few could afford. Without a market to sell to, Tom struggled to make a living off his creative work. Instead, he tried to find ways to pay his bills while still remaining in the embrace of nature and Algonquin Park seemed like just the place to do that. Luckily for Tom, Shannon said they could work something out. Tom would stay at Mowat Lodge and earn his keep by working as a park guide, often working alongside Ranger Mark Robinson. And once Mark and Tom got to know each other better, the Ranger's initial suspicion was replaced by a kind of admiration. Tom was a natural outdoorsman, extremely skilled at fishing and swimming, On top of that, Mark was fascinated by Tom's creative process. He liked to watch Tom paint and sketch. He'd even let the artist draw while on the job. That summer, Tom became a part of the Algonquin Park community. On the shores of Canoe Lake, he created the life he'd always desired, one where he could always be surrounded and inspired by nature. As the weather grew colder, Tom headed back to Toronto for the winter. He returned to the park as soon as spring broke the next year. This became his pattern. He'd retreat when the park froze over and come back as soon as the ice thawed. Algonquin Park was his home. The people there became his closest friends, maybe even more than friends. One person took a particular liking to Tom, A woman with raven black hair and delicate features, Winnie Trainer lived in the nearby town of Huntsville, but her parents owned a vacation cottage on Canoe Lake. She grew up spending summers in Algonquin Park and continued returning there as an adult. Of all the bachelors who came through the area, and there were plenty, Winnie had never met a man quite like Tom Thompson. The pair often spent evenings sitting together beside the water, watching the sunset. Winnie loved the way Tom could point out every color before them, the contrast between the cool tones of the lake and the brilliant oranges in the sky. Winnie was clearly smitten, but Tom's feelings were less clear. The available records show that Tom and Winnie had five summers full of seemingly romantic evenings, but they were never married, and it's impossible to know how intimate their relationship actually was. 
All we know for sure is that by July of 1917, 32-year-old Winnie was head over heels and trying to make her feelings known. You know, summers here at the park are some of my fondest memories as a girl. (sighs) I've always dreamed of the day I might bring my own children to this very bank. Well, you should. Nature is a child's truest friend. As a boy, I would have been lost without it. It's almost the end of the summer. At least for me and my family. We're going back to Huntsville this weekend. Do you think... Will you return next year? Certainly. I hope to come back every summer as long as I live. Though I might camp next time rather than return to the Mowat Lodge. Why is that? Uh, Shannon is always bugging me about expenses. I've replanted his entire garden twice now, just to get it to his liking. Though nothing I do seems to satisfy him for long before he's billed me for some other erroneous charge. Also, I suspect he's been reading my mail. What on earth led you to believe that? I notice a few of the envelopes seem to have been shoddily resealed. Not like I can do anything about it. The guy operates the entire post office. Tom, that's horrible. You know you're welcome to my family's cabin. You should start staying there after we go back to Huntsville. I'll think about that. Thank you, Winnie. In the meantime, I'd like to ask you not write anything of a... uh, sensitive nature to me while I'm at the lodge. Unless you want Shannon knowing every detail. In the summer of 1917, Tom took Winnie up on her offer to stay at her family's cottage. This benefited everyone involved. The trainers had a house sitter while they went to Huntsville, a nearby town, and Tom got his privacy. Even though he was staying at the trainer's lodge, Tom still kept up with his shifts as a park guide, And at the end of a long day, he liked to gather around a campfire with his colleagues. Alcohol was technically illegal due to prohibition in most Canadian provinces, including Ontario. But Tom and the other park workers almost always had liquor. They shared drinks and stories. Much of the conversation was dominated by talk of World War I. Hundreds of thousands of Canadians served in the war, so it affected almost everyone in the country. We can't know exactly what Tom and his co-workers thought, but it's safe to say that by 1917, there was some anti-German sentiment throughout Canada. And this impacted one Algonquin Park visitor more than anyone else. 25-year-old Martin Blecker Jr. was a German-American from Buffalo, New York. His family had been coming to the park for the last several years, so he should have been considered a local. But since he was of German descent, perhaps he was treated differently under the fog of war. It was rumored that he'd been pro-Germany and dodged the American draft by fleeing to Canada. But no matter what anyone thought about the war itself, running from the draft was almost universally looked down upon. The gossip was yet another thing that made people not like Martin. And it's rumored that this was at the heart of an argument on July 7th, 1917. That night, Tom was enjoying some booze and card games with Mark, Shannon, and his fellow park guides. They gathered over a table in one of the guides' cabins. But things got awkward when Martin Blecker Jr. stumbled through the door. Pour me another one, Mark. (laughs) <laughs> you artists sure can down your fair share. 
Another it is. Nice night for a drink, eh, gentlemen? What's the bar serving up tonight? Who taught you your manners, boy? Coming into a man's house uninvited? It's quite all right, Tom. There's plenty to go around. Hear that, Thompson? I'm more than welcome here. I saw that giant trout again today. He was just dancing around my bait, mocking me. I tell you what, I swear one of those American tourists will end up catching that sucker before any of us. I take that bet, Mark. If I catch it before you do, you'll give me time and a half. I'll take that bet. Only because I don't think you'll be able to do it. Should we deal you in as well, Martin? Don't bother. The kid will just end up abandoning us halfway through the round. Why would that be, Thompson? I got one word for you, son. Deserter. You... That's enough! Settle yourselves! Don't get in my way if you know what's good for you. Coming up, Tom's final day in El Algonquin Park. Hi, I'm Ashley Flowers, the creator and host of the true crime podcast, Crime Junkie. And you might remember me from a few podcast shows like Supernatural, International Infamy, or Very Presidential. I'm popping in to tell you about my new book that I think all of you true crime fans will not be able to put down. It's called All Good People Here, and it's officially out right now. It's a mystery about a journalist who returns to her small hometown and becomes obsessed with trying to solve a kidnapping that she thinks could be linked to a decades-old unsolved murder. It is full of twists and turns and will leave you on the edge of your seat until the very last page. Grab your copy of All Good People Here now, wherever books are sold. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some... The gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to our story. 39-year-old Tom Thompson slept in on the morning of Sunday, July 8, 1917, as he wrenched himself out of bed. Perhaps memories of the previous night came flooding back to him. He and Martin Blecker Jr. had gotten into a scuffle. They ended the night on bad terms. The thought made Tom cringe. Yet despite the drinking and the fighting, he felt pretty good. He just had a gnawing hunger in his stomach. It was time to eat. He trudged down to Moat Lodge, where Shannon's wife, Annie, served him a hot breakfast. After filling up, Tom went back outside to check the weather. He noted the gray tinge in the sky and frowned. Just then, he heard footsteps behind him. It was Shannon, a cup of coffee in his hands, coming to join him on the veranda. How are you feeling this morning, Tom? I'll be a lot better when this rain clears and I can go out fishing. I was hoping to get a jump start on that bet I made with Mark. You were serious then? Well, I'm nothing if not serious, Shannon. And as you're always so prompt to point out, I need the money. <clears throat> well, it's not looking like a promising morning for fishing. That'll pass. You can tell by the shading of the clouds that the sun is just on the other side. I reckon it'll burn off by noon. 
I'll set out then, catch the fish, and leave it on Robinson's doorstep. <laughs> uh, let me get you some provisions for the trip. Planning on adding it to my tab then, are you? <laughs> Free of charge. Consider it a gift from a friend. It was an odd shift in Shannon's tone. Normally, he was extremely frugal, even selfish. Now, he was offering free supplies. But Tom wasn't going to question a good thing. By noon, the rain had started to subside. He packed up his canoe, and Shannon gave him a knapsack full of food and fishing gear. Later on, Shannon claimed that just before Tom set off on the water, he said, I'll be back either tonight or tomorrow morning. Don't worry if I'm late. Tom paddled away around 1 p.m. on July 8, 1917. He made it roughly a mile out on Canoe Lake before disappearing behind a bank of trees. About two hours later, Martin Blecker Jr., the German-American visitor Tom had argued with, drove a motorboat across the lake with his sister. As they sped across the water, she noticed something odd. Martin, wait! What is that? It looks like a canoe got overturned. Uh, it must have drifted from the hotel dock or something. Stupid tourists don't know how to anchor their equipment. Isn't that Tom Thompson's boat? I've never seen another painted that way. Come on, I'm starving. Let's get back and see if we can help start supper. Shouldn't we look closer? Or at least tell someone? Tom had painted his boat a unique shade of gray. Everyone knew it belonged to him. Despite that, neither Martin nor his sister reported seeing his vessel overturned that afternoon. However, the sight must have bothered them because the next day they finally told Shannon what they'd seen. At that point, Martin towed the boat back to Mowat Lodge. But it appears Shannon also wasn't quick to worry. He waited another day before informing park ranger Mark Robinson. By then it was Tuesday the 10th, a full 48 hours since Tom had left. That's Tom Thompson's boat, all right. Not a doubt in my mind. Why didn't you come get me sooner? Well, Martin only just towed the boat here yesterday. I thought for certain Tom had simply let it get away from him and would have made his way back by now. I can't imagine where he could be. There's a gallon of maple syrup and enough bacon to last a week. How long was he planning on being gone? As far as I knew, he was planning on grabbing that fish you were after and returning in a day or two. Said he wanted to rub it in your face by leaving it on your doorstep. We need to start the search right away. I'd reckon he's gotten injured, maybe broken a bone, and he's stranded somewhere off one of these shores. Of course. Just tell me how I can help, Ranger. Mark Robinson was immediately suspicious of Shannon and Martin. They'd waited days to report Tom's boat. And while Shannon insisted Tom only planned to be gone a few days, the canoe was packed with enough supplies to last two to three weeks. It just didn't add up. Mark couldn't shake the feeling that something was off. So on July 11, 1917, a full three days after Tom's boat was discovered, he assembled a task force of fellow park rangers to search for Tom. The group headed in the direction Tom was last seen. They dragged the lake, 
searched small islands on foot, and scoured the shorelines, all to no avail. Over the next few days, the search expanded and intensified. Park rangers scoured the area and even checked the nearby town of Huntsville, perhaps wanting to see if Tom had gone to stay with Winnie Trainer and her family. Again, they couldn't find him anywhere. Nevertheless, Mark Robinson stayed positive. He was adamant that he was going to find his missing friend. He would keep searching no matter how long it took. But then, on the morning of July 16th, a doctor who was visiting the park spotted something bobbing out on the water. The doctor pointed two local guides who were passing by in a canoe towards the object, and they headed over to get a better look. As they drew near, their faces drained of color. They noticed the hand first, and then the rest of the body floating face down in the water. 39-year-old Tom Thompson was finally found. Coming up, Mark Robinson investigates Tom's mysterious death. And now, back to our story. After six days of searching, 39-year-old Tom Thompson's body was discovered on July 16, 1917. He was found floating on the surface of his beloved Canoe Lake in Ontario, Canada. Because Algonquin Park was so remote, there was no official government presence aside from the park rangers. The park ranger, Mark Robinson, was automatically appointed as the lead investigator. He headed down to the banks to examine his friend's body. I warn you, Mark, what we found in the water today I would hardly recognize this human if it hadn't been for the clothing. Where is it, then? Uh, We've docked him just there. He's in such a state. Uh, We didn't dare pull him out of the water. Uh, We covered him with a sheet to help keep away the curious. Also, to help with the uh, odor. Uh, Here, uh, this way. Mark waded through the shallow water to where Tom's body was anchored. As soon as he pulled back the sheet, he covered his mouth, afraid he might get sick. As a 50-year-old veteran who'd served in combat, Mark was no stranger to the grim realities of death. But what he saw that night would haunt him for the rest of his days. After days in the water, Tom's once handsome face was now bloated and blistered beyond recognition. The park ranger was heartbroken. But he was also baffled. It didn't make sense that Tom drowned. He was a highly skilled outdoorsman and an excellent swimmer. Mark was sure there was more to the story. Unfortunately, just as there wasn't any official police presence, there also wasn't a team of experts available to examine the body. Nor was there any place to safely store the remains. The park superintendent contacted a coroner But he was traveling and wouldn't be able to get there until the next day. So Mark was forced to leave Tom's body anchored in the water overnight. When the coroner still hadn't arrived by the following morning, Mark Robinson asked the doctor who found the body to take a closer look. The doctor had never performed an autopsy before, but he did the best he could. Hmm bruising here along the right side of the temple and a bit of blood coming from the ear would suggest 
injury before reaching the water. Derak, perhaps. Yeah, as though he slipped and hit his head. Though it doesn't explain this material wrapped around the ankle here. What is that? Fishing line. You'd have to make a real mess of fishing to get the line wrapped around your ankle like this. It's, it's twisted around him, I'd say, 16 or 17 times. But Tom was an excellent fisherman. He would know better. Also, this looks like a cotton line. I've gone out on the lake with that man over a hundred times. He always uses copper wire. In Mark Robinson's mind, Tom's head injury and the fishing line roused his suspicion. They made him certain that foul play was involved. He wondered if someone else had been in the boat with Tom, someone who would have had cotton line, someone who would have hit Tom or pushed him overboard. But that was all conjecture. They needed an expert, or at least someone familiar with autopsies, to figure out what really happened. And time was of the essence. With every hour under the summer sun, Tom's body grew more decomposed. Unsure when he could reasonably expect a medical examiner to arrive, Mark Robinson made the difficult decision to bury the body without a proper autopsy ever being performed. They scheduled the burial for the following day. The service was only to be attended by friends and neighbors, including a heartbroken Winnie trainer. When Winnie stepped off the train on July 17th, Algonquin Park seemed to have lost all its magic. She scanned the picturesque shoreline, once colored with happy memories. Now it was dark and tragic, the resting place of the only man she'd ever envisioned a future with. Winnie ran to Mark Robinson's cottage and demanded to see Tom's body. Where is he? Lead me to him this instant! Winnie, believe me, I understand you're upset, but I'm afraid he's in no state for viewing. Oh, Mark, how could this have happened? No one knew those waters better than Tom. He couldn't have drowned. Someone did this to him. I can feel it. Someone in this park is a murderer. Though he wouldn't say it out loud, Mark Robinson agreed. But who would have the motive and means to kill Tom was another question entirely. At the burial that afternoon, Mark only half listened to the sermon. He was distracted. He kept an eye on the people around him and ran through a list of possible suspects in his mind. First was Shannon. The fact that it took him so long to report Tom's upturned canoe was something Mark couldn't shake. Plus, his claim that Tom only planned to be gone a day or two didn't match up with the evidence. Now, Shannon was trying to be as involved as possible. He even paid for the entire search and burial out of his own pocket. Mark wondered if this unusual generosity from the otherwise frugal businessman was evidence of guilt. There was also Martin Blecker Jr., the 25-year-old German-American. He'd seen the dark way Martin looked at Tom as he stormed out that final night. He remembered the words Martin had spat at Tom before he disappeared. Don't get in my way if you know what's good for you. Tom was quick to shame the 25-year-old for dodging the American draft. Maybe it enraged Martin so much that he'd resorted to violence. 
Mark had his suspicions, but he couldn't say exactly what happened. No one could. They simply watched as Tom's body was lowered into the ground. Hours later, an official coroner finally showed up that evening. The only problem was Tom's body had already been buried. Rather than exhume the remains, the coroner chose to conduct interviews with those who lived around the lake. He used these statements, not a real autopsy, to determine Tom's cause of death. It was officially listed as an accidental death by drowning. After that, the coroner ruled the death an accident, and things only got more strange. On July 18th, Tom's body was moved without Mark's permission in the dead of night. An undertaker dug up Tom's remains with the help of none other than Shannon. They were moving Tom's body to his family's plot in Leith, Ontario, though why they chose to do it overnight remains up for debate. And while the transport provided an opportunity to conduct an official autopsy, no real examination was attempted. According to official reports, Tom's remains were simply sealed in a steel casket and placed onto a train. They arrived in Tom's hometown the following morning. Clearly, this raised a lot of questions. Mark, Winnie, and others close to Tom felt like Shannon was being shady, making decisions behind their backs, purposely avoiding an autopsy. To add to this suspicious behavior, Shannon also started spreading new rumors about Tom's death. Here we are. You'll be staying on the second floor in one of our most famous rooms. Oh, really? What makes it so famous? You know the artist Tom Thompson? He used to stay there. We actually sell some of his works here, if you're interested. He was a good friend of mine. God rest his soul. I can't believe it's been two months already. Well, what happened to him? He took his own life out on the lake there. Not many know this, but it was actually my wife who solved the tragic mystery. You see, she found a letter in the same room you'll be staying in. Like, a goodbye letter? (laughs) Oh no, it was from Tom's girl. She was writing to insist he marry her. My wife thinks she was going to have his baby, so she demanded he man up and take the plunge. Guess he didn't see any other way out. Really? Why wouldn't he just marry her? Tom was as wild as the land that claimed him. He was never getting married. (laughs) Something about those creative types. All right, well, you're all set. Please enjoy your stay. Both Mark Robinson and Tom's family were appalled by Shannon's story. There was no evidence to support the idea that Tom had gotten anybody pregnant, and those closest to Tom insisted he never experienced suicidal ideation. According to Mark Robinson, Tom was constantly talking about his hopes for the future. He dreamt of great adventures and even greater art. Unwilling to believe Tom's death was an accident, Mark and Winnie both continued to think he was murdered. Over the years, Mark gave multiple interviews detailing the weird circumstances surrounding Tom's death, the time it took Martin and Shannon to report his overturned boat, the injuries, the fishing line, 
the movement of Tom's body, and the lack of a real autopsy. Meanwhile, Winnie lived the rest of her days holding on to her memories of Tom. She never had another romantic relationship, and even as years passed and Tom's work became more valuable, Winnie kept every painting he'd ever given her. The truth of what became of the now-renowned Tom Thompson remains as much a mystery today as when he disappeared. While certain elements of his death do seem suspicious, it's also possible that the original coroner's report is right. Maybe he really did have some kind of accident that led to his drowning. We know only one thing for sure. The day Tom Thompson died, Canada lost one of its finest artists. Two of Tom's last works are still displayed in the National Gallery of Canada and the Art Gallery of Ontario. The two oil paintings are titled The Jack Pine and The West Wind. In addition, many of Tom's works are kept at Algonquin Park. The landscape that inspired him is now home to his art. While his death continues to baffle historians, It's a comfort to know Tom Thompson's memory lives on in the area he loved so dearly. Thanks again for tuning in to Unsolved Murders. For more information on Tom Thompson, amongst the many sources we used, we found Who Killed Tom Thompson by John Little and The Many Deaths of Tom Thompson by Gregory Clogus, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Unsolved Murders and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Nick Johnson, Trent Williamson, and Carly Madden. This episode of Unsolved Murders is written by Ellie Margolis, edited by Karis Allen and Giles Hofseth, fact-checked by Lori Siegel, researched by Mickey Taylor, and produced by Freddie Beckley. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Tiana Camacho, Joe Hernandez, Cameron Nicod, Julian Smith, and Laith Walshlager. Unsolved Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. 